0: Welcome back to the Comeback Podcast. As usual, I am your host, Connor, and I am delighted to be joined today by Kirsten Jackson, the IBS dietitian, who's going to talk to me a bit more about a condition that I don't really have too much knowledge of. And the whole point of this podcast is to expand and broaden awareness for a whole host of issues. So I'm excited for this discussion. Kirsten, welcome to the show. How are you today?
1: Hi, welcome. Um, thank you guys to say welcome. I got confused. <laughs> thank you for um, having me. No, I'm great. I've obviously had a long day. I've got a two-year-old, so I apologize for that. Um, but no, I'm great. I'm really excited to be here and get the information out about IBS because so many people are suffering.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just, I guess, as an, a brief overview for those who don't know what it is, including myself, what is IBS exactly? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so it can seem really consume, confusing just because IBS is not a condition where you go to the doctors, get a blood test, and you do or don't have it. It's it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's more of a, it's a, it's a synd- syndrome really. So it's, IBS stands for Irritable Bowel Syndrome, and it's a collection of symptoms. Um, and it's actually considered what we call um, a disorder of the gut brain access. So basically, you've got a very sensitive gut to make it really simple. But when we look at what IBS is, a collection of things. So people often have changes in their gut microbiota there's often what we call hypersensitivity so they might feel pain more easily than other people there's often elements of um, food intolerances there so they might digest things differently or not be able to digest them compared to other people Um, and that can lead to a whole host of symptoms so things like stomach pain diarrhea constipation bloating um, and this can often then be related to their brain in terms of if they're a particularly um, anxious person or they're going through um, a period of dep- actual clinical depression. We know that this can make things worse. So it is a really complicated thing to get your head around because that's not re- a very straightforward answer, if you know what I mean.
0: No, absolutely. And I guess this also might be tricky to say, but what are some of you know, the early warning signs or early things to look out for, which might be indications of IBS?
1: make. <laughs> So anything like um, distension or bloating, um, which or stomach pain, which then changes with um, either the frequency or the consistency of a bowel motion. So by that, I mean, say you had a lot of stomach pain after maybe eating a few hours before you go to the toilet, have loose stools, and then that stomach pain goes away, or that bloating goes away, or perhaps, you know, you're very constipated. And again, then when you open your bowels, that, that, that stomach pain goes away. So it's the, it seems to be an IBS when we look at anything that's bloating or distension or pain that's then related to actually changes going to the toilet Um, and also it's over a long period of time you know three to six months it's not it's a chronic condition so if you have just been having symptoms for two days or a week then that's not necessarily IBS Um, and those symptoms still shouldn't be ignored because and this is a tricky thing with the IBS diagnosis if someone just has loose stools yes it could be IBS but actually it could be celiac disease it could be inflammatory bowel disease it could be even bowel cancer so don't sit and think oh i've got to wait now six months before i get this diagnosis if you have a change in bowel habits or those kinds of any of those symptoms just go to your doctors to get checked
0: yeah i see and is there a certain i guess is there a certain period in your life or a certain demographic that's more likely to be affected i.e perhaps when you go through puberty or adulthood or are men more likely than women how, how does it work
1: Yeah, so I'll explain what the research shows, but the research isn't always particularly accurate. I mean, that's what we need to understand as dietitians and doctors and psychologists working in this area. So when we look at the research, it seems to be um, adults who sort of working age as such. So the the numbers seem to dip after people are in that retirement age or with women. The numbers seem to dip actually after menopause, but also the numbers are really low in children and, and teenagers typically. Um, however those it doesn't mean that people can't get it at that age it's just less less likely to happen and what we think is there's a huge connection with um stress and mental health um, maybe in that middle section of age that's hey um but we don't know this is a problem when we research an ips it is very woolly or grey in that we don't have straightforward answers and it's like when you ask me about if if it's more common in men or women in the research it shows that it's much more common in women but when you look at actually the traits of women and what we do we are more likely to go to the doctor with a health problem than men so it could actually be that men are just as likely to get it as men as women but they're just not getting diagnosed and we know also that men don't open up as much as women about talking about these things so there's there's It's hard to answer that again, straightforward, but the research shows it tends to be in adults who are, I'd say, of working age, let's say, to keep it simple, and then also more likely in women, but I wouldn't rule it out. It can happen any time in your life, and whether you're a man or a woman or
0: yeah, I see. And I do want to talk perhaps slightly later on in the conversation about your work as a dietitian. But firstly, if you don't mind me asking you, Kirsten, uh, I'm going to make a presumption. Have you personal experience of IBS yourself?
1: Yes, yes, I have. And um, I actually do publicly share this just because I think like anybody, when you have IBS, the last thing you do, you know, when you first meet somebody's like, oh, by the way, I've got bowel problems. But what I found is that as soon as I've opened up about that, actually so many other people, you know, have had the same problem and it's actually helped a lot of my clients. And I think, trust me in that, yes, I read the research and I'm obviously qualified in this area. I've got the degree, etc. But I've also got that extra level of understanding, like when they talk about the problems they're having, I've been there. So yes, I have had this and I actually had quite an unusual diagnosis route in that I actually had a different condition called celiac disease and I still got that. Um, And once I got that, I thought, great, my symptoms are gonna be cured now, I'm gonna go gluten-free, which is what you need to do for celiac disease. And yes, I initially did feel a lot better, but because my gut had been so disrupted for years, unfortunately I got this almost like secondary IBS from having a very disrupted gut for for a long time.
0: Right, I see. And how many years ago was this, if you don't mind me asking?
1: Um, So I probably started with digestive problems when I was, if I'm thinking really properly, maybe let's, I'd say 18, around the age of doing A-levels and going to university. So obviously quite a disruptive period in your life. Um, and I, I just put it down to, oh, it must be stress or it must be. And I think I didn't quite realise just how bad it got because it does creep up on you. Um, and I didn't actually then get diagnosed with the initial celiac disease until I was tw- say 25 when I'd finished uni. Um, and then um, on ongoing IBS after that, because I went back to the doctor thinking, you know, maybe my celiac disease isn't well controlled. Maybe I've got back is really good, everything looked fine. Um, so unfortunately I had this IBS on top of that and I'm now in my 30s so I'd say digestive problems in general for a good 13 years which is a long time when you're only just into your 30s
0: right I see and I do want to talk a bit more about the actual symptoms and the physical impact but before that can you talk to me a bit about the mental impact because obviously a physical Im- illness can also affect the mind the mind and body connected how did ibs and the previous uh, misdiagnosis etc play on your mental state if you don't mind me asking you
1: yeah yeah no um, and i think this is a really important conversation to have to be honest because again we we're trying to come away from this in medicine um, but we do focus way too much on the physical side Then actually the physical and mental side just overlap in probably every condition to be honest um but yeah for me personally so during there was things where for instance, like really simple things, like I would um, trying to study, I just couldn't even study at university, I'd have this brain fog, um, and then I would be, I, I had quite severe depression during university, I ended up on antidepressants, um, I'd often sleep during the day because I thought oh, I was really tired, and obviously I might have been part of celiac as well, but I was actually never had anemia or any medical problem with that, but it would have been the depression, Um, and then even qualifying, I remember like as a dietitian, I was, I remember just periods of just spending all day, you know, at home crying and things like this. And this is just, you know, directly linked to gut health. I mean, it's not just gut health. There's probably other things going on at the time, but just this lack of energy and being in constant symptoms, um, it really, really impacts your mental health quite severely, to be honest.
0: Yeah. I can imagine so. And regarding the physical symptoms, um, I know that you have alluded to it. There's obviously gut health issues, et cetera, and issues with the toilet. But how um, how would you describe, the say, the day-to-day physical symptoms of what you would experience if you were going through IBS? How would you describe it, perhaps in a bit more detail, if that's okay?
1: Yep. Yeah, so I'm going to describe it in, in a few ways. I wouldn't go too much into my personal one, just because I don't have any barriers. Well, I probably should have some barriers because this isn't normal, <laughs> but I don't have any barriers. But what I would say is if I describe what my personal symptoms were at the time, it's probably not going to be that relevant just because people listening is going to vary so much. But Typically, some physical symptoms can impact people from the moment they get up in the morning, for example. You know, you, you want to kind of maximize your sleep. Say you've got an hour to get ready and get out the door. Some people will end up spending a half an hour on the toilet before they even are able to get out the door because they're either chronically constipated or they've just got loose stools. The, and, you know, the anxiety of then having to go to work is making it worse. So even from the moment they get up in the morning... Then potentially if they've got meetings that day, they might do things like have to skip meals because they haven't already planned things before they have any accidents in the day. Because even though you might have a really nice um, I don't know, like a suit or something tailored for the work environment, that's maybe not going to fit you come 10 o'clock because a bloating is just going to start. Um, and then it's this chronic pain. So pain on and off during the day, and it's just really it, it really is debilitating in terms of mood um and then it's the unpredictability of the bowels so things like if you're going out for a meal that day or Um, maybe there's like a team meeting at work So I'm just thinking of things that we used to go through. Um, You're having to either come up with excuses as to why you can't eat something or you're eating something, sitting there in this group situation thinking, I wonder what my gut's going to do. And then having to run off um, to go to the toilet um, and with urgency to the point where some people don't even make it to the toilet. So obviously once that's happened, even just once, the anxiety of that thought as a grown adult, not being able to have that control It's just, it's just awful. So that's, you know, I think sometimes we can trivialize it because we'll think, oh, it's only a bit of tummy pain or it's just a bit of bloating. But actually it's not those symptoms themselves. It's what does that actually mean going through the day for somebody and actually just zapping them off their absolute, all their energy, choosing what they're even going to be able to wear, to be able to eat, uh, really impacting their mental health all day long. It's it's the impact of those symptoms, which is really what um, IBS does to somebody.
0: Right, I see. And as you're describing this, I'm trying to look at it from the perspective of somebody who, which I am, of somebody who doesn't experience this. What sort of things do you think we can do? And I'm talking from both sides, people with IBS and people without to perhaps raise awareness or to perhaps make it more knowledgeable or make make it more of a supportive space for those who are experiencing it. How, what sort of yeah. things do you think we can do to raise awareness?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good idea, and it's it's nice that you've asked from both sides as well. So I think if if you've got IBS, it depends on how comfortable you feel. But some really simple things would be, number one, speaking to your line manager at work or whoever's in charge, just so they're aware, and trying to explain it in a way of, because I don't think most people understand what IBS is. So you don't, you just need to explain exactly how it's impacting your life. And I know this can be a big jump, but really they have to keep legally. They should be keeping that confidential. Um, and also, what you'll probably find is as soon as you've opened up, one in five people have this condition. So actually, chances are they probably have this anyway. But your line manager might be able to do things that give you some more um, space potentially to work from home or it might be a case of actually there's toilet facilities facilities in the building that just not appropriate, or they might have access for a disabled toilet, for example. So definitely opening up um, to within the work environment. Also um, for people who've got IBS is doing things like having or uh, joining groups on Facebook and things like that. So they've got a space to actually vent with other people that have got it. Because as I said before, it's quite, it is even when you've got someone really understanding like yourself, Connor, who's trying to do work in this area and raise awareness, it is very difficult to fully understand unless you've got it. So it's it's good to have that kind of area where someone can just vent to another person that's got it. And, um, and it's it's really hard to say for others. People have got IBS because often you know we don't want to share these things. Um, but for people who don't have it, I think it's about educating yourself about the le- the level of impact. So there is a charity in the UK um, called the IBS Network, and they have lots of really good free online articles about the impact of IBS and how it how it um, changes people's lives. And I think just even taking some time out to read that and to understand it would be really important. If you've maybe got a friend or a relative who's got, um, or a partner who's got IBS, doing things like if you are cooking dinner, for example, you can say to them, oh, you know, just make a bit more effort to so, say, is there any um, food, foods that you'd like me to get in? Or even if they say to you things like, oh, actually I'll bring my own, don't make a big deal of that. They're not trying to be rude. Simple things like that can really go a long way or um, just being a sympathetic ear. I think sometimes we focus so much on doing stuff or saying things, but sometimes just being a really good listener, like actually actively just being quiet and listening to that person can really go a long way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I love the fact you've mentioned that sometimes you don't actually have to do something as in I, you know, whatever that could be, just listening and being supportive can be so crucial. I'm glad that that's something you've mentioned. Can I ask you a bit more about the food? Because um, that fascinated me throughout the conversation. I heard something about gluten, and say specific foods. Can you talk to me about specific foods with IBS, for example, foods that help foods that don't help? Can you tell me a bit more?
1: Yeah, so this is a really complicated area, which is often not helped very much by people online who don't have any qualifications, unfortunately, <laughs> making it very confusing. But so foods that typically would trigger IBS, if you notice anything, if anyone watched, follows me on Instagram and things like that, You'll notice that I would never put up a day in my life with my diet or I would never put these are the foods that trigger your IBS because everybody is actually different. So it's really wrong as you know, to advise someone to say avoid all these foods because actually you might be able to tolerate them. So foods that may, we'll use the word may trigger your IBS, are what we call FODMAPs which are different types of carbohydrates um, that are found in various different foods. And I'll give some examples in a minute. But basically, they don't digest very well until they get to the large bowel, which is a bit right at the end of your gut. And here, there's lots of bacteria, which breaks it down. And it gives off a lot of gas, which can cause a lot of pain, a lot of bloating. Um, And in some people, it can draw in water to cause a lot of diarrhea. So these carbohydrates are found in things like your milk for example so you might find that milk causes you symptoms because it contains lactose lactose is one of these carbohydrates um things like honey for example honey contains fructose and fructose is one of these um these carbohydrates and gluten is a really interesting one because gluten gets a really bad name everyone says you know as soon as you get ibs avoid dairy avoid gluten and i'm banging my head against the wall because gluten is a very innocent protein that doesn't cause any issues in ibs gluten is an issue for people with celiac disease like me where that's what triggers our condition the problem is and where people are getting confused around things like bread and pasta is that they actually contain one of these carbohydrates these fodmaps uh, we call fructans And in large enough quantities, even in people who don't have IBS or celiac and things like this, they will still have digestive problems. So often people might feel better on a gluten free diet, but actually they don't need to be 100 percent gluten free because they don't need to avoid gluten. They just need to be reducing down their fructan, this other carbohydrate intake down to a level they can tolerate. So. Often people can manage like uh, maybe two slices of bread for breakfast, but the rest of the day they can't really have any more wheat because that would send them over. Or, you know, small or lactose intolerance, for example. They might manage um, some milk and tea and coffee, or um maybe a small amount of yogurt, but actually more than that's going to cause the issue. And coming to your question about what's good for IBS is actually um, we don't have a lot of knowledge around specific foods that are good for IBS, but we do have a lot of knowledge around. Foods that are good for gut health and our gut microbiome, which is our things like our bacteria in our gut, and that is variety. So it's kind of ironic because whenever we have IBS, our initial thought is, what can we cut out of this diet? People end up on a really restrictive diet. Best case scenario, they get symptom relief, but long term, they're starving their gut bacteria and other elements in their gut off. And long-term, they're probably going to end up with more digestive problems. So it's really important, therefore, to work with a dietitian, navigate this very complicated area to find out what your personal intolerances are, to find out what you can tolerate. And then long-term, really make sure your diet is as varied as possible so that you're getting all those lovely gut health benefits for your gut.
0: Yeah, I see. And as I'm listening to this, I'm, I'm focusing mainly on the food relationship to do with, say, Say, for example, if I'll use someone like myself who doesn't have IBS, I can generally be quite open to eating anything and I wouldn't have to really think about it. Say if I went to a restaurant, I'd look at a menu and go, oh, that looks okay." But it feels like and please correct me if I'm wrong, that with IBS, you have to be not on guard all of the time but you have to be really quite specific say going to certain restaurants or even for example traveling abroad like I'm currently in Vietnam I know you're in Dubai and just watching out what you actually put into your body because it might cause say a flare up etc it sounds like you have to be very switched on about the stuff that you consume
1: Yes and this is again it makes it really stressful about having IBS and again one of the other actual elements of how does it impact your life you know and um, we always joke and say oh normal people take these things for granted you go out and you just you're know, maybe worst case scenario you're thinking oh maybe I shouldn't indulge in a dessert tonight and whereas someone with IBS is sitting there thinking am I going to run to the toilet in 10 minutes so it is really stressful but what I would say is Typically, when pe- like pay our patients come to us, they're in that situation and they may be trying to avoid all these foods, not really enjoying the meal out and still they're getting symptoms. But that's, again, where you need to be working with the right person, because that way then you can get specific on what you're actually reacting to. And long term, you can actually make your gut a little bit more resilient. So it makes life easier. If you can go out, for example, to a restaurant and all you need to do is avoid garlic. Great. That's a lot easier than going out and saying no garlic, no onion, no spices, no um honey, you know and, and then you're still getting symptoms anyway because you're not really sure on what's causing the symptoms regardless so you, you do need to get a little bit more specific because long term you're not going to be able to manage this otherwise
0: right i see and is it similar to other conditions such as well i'll, I'll give you just a bit of background i've spoken to people with chronic conditions before such as endometriosis uh, again which i don't experience and every time it'll come up with something like they will have to sometimes during a flare-up spend all day at home genuinely cancelling all plans and you know everything's up in the air whilst this I guess episode passes is IBS in that category or can you still I guess function to a degree obviously despite the perhaps toiletry issues?
1: Yeah, so it really depends on the person. So the symptoms vary so much. So some people would have a really awful flare up; they'd be in on the toilet all day. I have had people um, initially clients telling me things like they've had to give up jobs or be on sick leave if it's been that bad that they can't do anything. Whereas some people's flare ups might be that they've eaten something wrong the light night before and they just really bloated the next day. So the flare up varies so much. And this is where I would say that realistically, even if you work with the right person and you know your specific um, triggers and you're working on your gut health and everything's going well, this is a chronic condition and there's no cure for it. So at some stage in the future, you will have a flare up. But the main thing is that you've worked on your gut in the correct way. So that flare up is, oh no, I'm going to have to be bloated today. Or I had some loose stools this morning because I ate something wrong for breakfast and I was out, you know, something more minor than having to lose your job or be off for weeks on end so that's where it's really crucial to get that control
0: right I see and that leads me on nicely to your work actually I came across uh, your Instagram handle which I believe is the IBS dietitian can you tell me how you became involved in that side of things from your own personal experience to then working as a dietitian helping clients go through similar challenges can you talk to me a bit more about your work
1: yeah yeah so for anyone looking it's the dot ibs dietitian just to confuse you all <laughs> um but yeah so in, in terms of working in i i'm just trying to think back because it's been a good 11 years now so i qualified as a dietitian just because i think at the time it, nutrition and science was just becoming a bigger thing in the media so and i was in a very privileged position of course being in the uk where with a group of people i was with everyone was going to uni, So i was like oh okay i'll be a dietitian and honestly it was about as trivial as that at the time But then i qualified and we, i went into the, what we call the typical route we go into the national health service which is the 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 majority of the health um, service in the in the UK. And I did, um, ended up in a gastro um, rotation for six months. And I remember just, I thought it was absolutely amazing the level of involvement as a dietitian we had in in the medical care. So it wasn't just a kind of, I thought of, oh, that person needs some more calories or uh, the dieticians here, we may as well use them. It was literally part of the medical care. So I I worked in gastro in general initially. And then as I was doing more kind of outpatients rather than the inpatient things where people were very, very sick, um, I was noticing that I was getting very interested in the IBS route. And obviously I had that self taught background. Um, but what had frustrated me is that when I had learned how to solve my own IBS, I had learned this sort of pattern of using all the research and putting it together and using it in the correct way, which is quite complicated to do on your own. But I wasn't able to deliver that to my patients just because with the nature of the job I was in, I was only able to see somebody like once every three months, for example, and there's no support in between. So that's where I thought, actually, this is a real niche. This is where, you know, I need to put this time and effort because I've known personally how solving IBS can really change my life. So it was kind of, a, I guess, a bit of a combination of my personal experience and also um, that that motivation that actually this is a really interesting area. So it was, it was a good combination.
0: Yeah and can you tell me more about solving IBS like what does it mean to solve it and how did you go about that?
1: Yeah so definitely just to clarify solving does not mean curing at the minute we have no research to kind of back the fact that it's back to back up any idea if we cure it solving it means that that person who's got the condition is 100% in control they know their body they know how to manage their symptoms so if they have if they accidentally eat something they shouldn't have say they're out, they know how to manage that to get back on track. And the majority of the time, it's not impacting their life. That's that's solving it. So in order to do that, we need to take a really multifactorial approach. So they need to find out their food triggers, of course, but also that's just a drop in the ocean. Really, when you think about IBS, they also need to build their own gut backup. So they need to be on a very diet without triggering the symptoms. They need to be looking at the sleeping patterns because if your sleep's not good, we know gut health isn't gonna work. Your gut's not gonna function. We need to look at your mental health um, and we need to look at exercise as well and movement and piece those together so that long-term they're only having to avoid maybe one or two foods to manage their symptoms as well as lifestyle changes so they're not on any crazy restrictive diets um so it's not just about being on a crazy restrictive diet to get no symptoms it's about really returning back to normal life as much as possible basically
0: and how i guess how and this might be tricky actually but how would say a day in the life of your practice look like do you see multiple clients online offline do you work with them over a long period of time how does it work for you say perhaps um not day to day but you know over a certain prolonged period how does that happen
1: yeah, so my day-to-day in my business is is completely erratic. I've got a two-year-old, so I'd love to say that I do X, Y, and Z, but <laughs> it's completely erratic. But in terms of how I work with my clients, I work with them in a few ways. So we've got um, what I call the VIP program, which is a very cheesy name, but basically it's one-to-one support. So it's over three months because we used to offer, when I first started working, you know, the typical what you'd expect, you know, you pay per consultation or you see someone one-on-one um for one-off consultations but actually while i've got all this experience i know the science etc cetera, etc cetera, i don't know how that's going to impact that person's gut health because we're all very different so we need to apply that science and that knowledge over time and track the changes over time so it's a three-month program and then they we do three one-up, one up one so one-to-one consultations over that time via zoom which is great because you can see anyone in the world now. And then, in between times, which is probably more important, is the weekly email reviews. So, every week we have weekly email reviews where they send a food and symptom diary where we look at the movement, we look at the, their mood, the their nutrition the symptoms and we tweak it as or if needed, depending on you know if things are going according to plan or maybe they're not, or if that person's finding it difficult because that's also really important. It's just making sure it's really tailored. So that's one way. Um, and then the other way is a group program. So the group program, it's got that longevity in it in terms of it is a three month program again, because as I said, it takes that long. But the group program is gives people access to the video tutorials that I've given, that have done basically getting them from the point of being diagnosed to I, from IBS, for, with IBS, to the point of that real control at the end. Um, and they go through it at their own pace, and then we all come together for For a weekly um, group call where they can just ask any questions or if they have any concerns or problems. And that's really guiding them on how to tailor the information to their own situation. Because I think a lot of people get sometimes get confused about a group program because they're saying, wait, I thought you said it wasn't a one size fits all approach. And it definitely isn't. But what we do is teach people how to apply that science to their situation, which is really quite powerful actually, because that's what you need to learn how to do when you've got a chronic health condition like that. It's not a case of going to the doctor's, getting a tablet and taking it daily diligently you need to have a higher level understanding and we've also got things like ebooks um and doing things like blog posts and things like this which is sort of um i guess entry level in terms of if someone's not really sure what they need yet you know they might just want to do something simple download a book read a few posts things like that which is still useful information and they can kind of go through that at their own pace and in their own time so a whole range of ways that um that i work with people at the minute
0: Yeah, I see. And with those, say, perhaps group sessions, are they also used perhaps to harbor connection? Because I can imagine getting an initial diagnosis might be quite daunting, especially when you would perhaps feel like you're the only one. But then perhaps after a week or so, having a group call and being able to discuss certain symptoms and treatments, they might not feel as alone and they might feel more connected and supported than perhaps they were before. Is that also a reason perhaps?
1: Yes absolutely absolutely and actually the group program also has like a group um, uh, a Facebook group private group so people can share things in there and it's a great place to vent so one of the things that I love about the group sessions compared to maybe the one-to-one is a group session someone might and um, they're watching but they don't want to ask any questions and someone else has the courage to ask a question and everyone else is like that. oh that's a great question think about that or um, once someone else starts opening up, then it gives them the courage to open up and they they can kind of, you know, have a bit of a laugh about something which is, you know, otherwise it is serious and it, it is really lonely, as I said, even if you've got lovely partner or relatives or friends, it is really difficult to understand fully. So it's nice to do that together um, and to have to share the same things together and support each other it does give that extra level of um, care to be honest
0: yeah absolutely I love the fact you have mentioned that perhaps someone will ask a question that probably quite a few are thinking but you know perhaps too scared to broach the the subject initially but once one person's I guess open the floodgates then everyone can go and yeah I feel like that can be definitely quite beneficial in harboring connection and one thing you mentioned which it's, it struck me a bit um it is serious of course and I'm sure that in your job you do see a lot of people in distress due to the nature of the illness the condition etc Um, so with that I'm almost going to ask what is the reason you keep doing your work like what is your motivation what drives you what are some favorite things about the work you do can you tell me a bit more
1: yeah I mean question where to start really um, I think I just feel really lucky because I'll tell you something when I, I remember doing my first ever consultation like in dietetics in general when I was like how I had a 22 seems like a long time ago now and I remember thinking I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. i how lucky I felt It's because I'm like it's such it's almost like a selfish thing in a weird way because you're helping people um, which is a great feeling for you personally as well you know how lucky is that to be paid to actually help people change their life? It's, it's amazing. It's very um, addictive. And I, it's just, I mean, I always say, it sounds really awful, but my favorite person to get um, on inquiry calls when we're doing inquiry calls to see if we can actually help people is, is that person that's had it for 20 years. And in your head, you're just like, I can't wait to start working with you because you know, three months from now, you know, the life impact you're going to have for that person is just incredible. And it's also quite sad though, you know, when you think about it, that they haven't had that support. They should have had that support a long, long time ago, but it's just very addictive being able to help people in a very professional way. Um, and uh, apply that science and just give them the help that they should have had um, a long, long time ago. It's quite exciting for me that that's. I don't know what other dietitians would answer um, doing that. And the thing with um, the area that we work in in this scientific world is it's forever changing. So it's not a case of learning X, Y, Z and that's it. It's continually every single day. There's however many papers being published. So we're always having to keep on our toes and keep updating. And and that sort of doesn't really That you rest very much mentally which is again it's quite a um, fast-paced environment which I personally love um, and I'm sure other people wouldn't but anyone working in healthcare would agree but that's probably why they've gone into that area that you know it isn't just a a, it's not a stationary thing you're constantly having to learn so it's good it's very interesting.
0: And how do you adapt to that pressure then of perhaps new research coming out and making sure that you don't share inaccurate information and making sure that you're up to date and that everything that you're coming out with is genuine. How how do you keep up to date with that in an ever-changing world of information?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is difficult. But one of the things that helps is that I niche into irritable bowel syndrome. So I honestly don't know how someone does it if they're looking at all the areas of dietetics, because I think about the amount of papers that would come out every day. It's crazy. But in terms of IBS and gut health, it's I read probably for about half an hour, 45 minutes every day, new papers. I'm also part of like um the, the IBS network team. So I'm looking at that. I'm a part of like a private group of other dietitians. So we're always asking each other's opinions. Um, And then little things like even writing the blog post on my website, if anyone looks at them, you'll notice there's little numbers all over them. And each one of those numbers refers to a new paper. So writing like that. Um, doing podcasts Um, so sometimes I do podcasts like this which are more for the public and sometimes we do more medical ones which are quite in-depth sciencey ones Um, and then also I work for um, the the British Dietetic Association I do I'm a media spokesperson for them Um, and often you'll get some really random questions from the media and you think what what on earth is that supplement and you go and look it up and it is some fatty supplement that's why you didn't know about it but it's just another way to keep updated in terms of what people are going to ask you And I do think there's a level of, and I'm glad that I'm confident enough in my practice to know this as well. There is a point where you can't know absolutely every single thing. You're only human. And I think it's when someone asks you a question or if you're with a client and you're looking at their situation, you think, I'm not really sure about that. It's a good thing because you're human. And as long as you you say that and you say, you know what, I'm going to go away and check that out, you've got the skills to go and do that. And that's what I do sometimes. So I'm not a superhuman, um, but I do my absolute best. It's part of my legal registration to do that, to keep up to date. Um, And of course, things like courses. um, And then we're actually about to launch later this year. Of course for dietitians on irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and that's at a higher level than what I would speak to um, to the public. So that just keeps me updated because then you have to go and check all the references again and just make sure you're correct and things like that. So it is continual and it is high pressure, but I suppose until you've asked me this question, I didn't realize how much reading we do, but it's just continual reading
0: yeah, um, sure. and then
1: just acknowledging you know, you're, you're only human
0: absolutely no i love the fact that you've mentioned that that yeah we are only human and we can only do our best and i love the fact that you were seem to have the courage to say yeah i'm not too sure on that right now let me check and then we can you know go again i think that's definitely important rather than perhaps rushing in and thinking we know all the answers when you know it's it's not always going to be there we are going to sometimes you know have to pause reflect and then get back for with the accurate information now i'm i'm glad you mentioned that kirsten and can i just say i know this is tricky because obviously there's not one size fits all. But if you had to give, you know, maybe one or two like techniques, tips, or suggestions of how to deal with IBS, I know this is a very broad question and I know that this is going to be tricky to answer. How what would you say? What are maybe one or two tips that you would give in managing IBS?
1: Yeah. So number one, I would say stop focusing on your diet, which might sound strange as a dietitian to say, but I think there's so much focus on what can I take out of my diet next? And I would look at your lifestyle factors. So lifestyle factors, look at your sleep, look at you moving daily, not crazy CrossFit classes, but just a 30 minute stretch or walk. And then looking at things like mindfulness and meditation daily. So look outside your diet would be my number one tip. My number two tip would be you need some expert guidance. This is not easy is really complicated and you can end up spending a lot of money buying random tests, random supplements and things like that over the years and get absolutely nowhere and be really quite miserable. Um, Or you could, you know, get the guidance that you need from a dietitian. It really does need to be a dietitian after that point of diagnosis who can guide you through this really complicated science with their knowledge to get you to the point where you are managing and you're in control of your gut health. Please do not tackle this alone. It's not possible
0: absolutely i think that's a very empowering message of not tackling alone i think we do need connection in all areas and especially when tackling chronic condition so thank you for mentioning uh, i think before we wrap up uh, kirsten i'll just i guess give you the microphone for a minute is there any anything you'd like to add any final thoughts any final message anything you'd like to share anything you'd like to promote uh, for a minute or so any final thoughts
1: so final thoughts, what to say without keeping, keeping it to making it to be like succinct. And um, so what I would say to anyone is if you are interested in sorting out your IBS, I'd say please don't leave it too long because it, it really is that bad. You'll sit there and go, you know what? Um, Sally down the road has got this going on, or, you know, Jane has got this going on. I'm I'm lucky that I'm in this situation. It's not that bad, but guys, it is that bad. IBS, it impacts every element of your life. It's already been going on, if you listen to this podcast, it's already been going on for too long. So nip it in the bud now. It's not going away anywhere, and it's not going anywhere next week or next year. It's gonna be the same old stuff. So nip it in the bud, make sure you go to the doctors, get the correct testing done, and then seek out a dietitian to make things work. Um, and then the last thing i say is please check out our website. We have got, as I've already mentioned, there's a few different ways to work with dietitians. However, there's also free things on there, like the blog post. We spend hours writing free information. Um, and even on my Instagram at the dot .IBS dietitian, there's a free download. You can download about the 10 most common mistakes. It's not necessarily that I'm trying to, you know, throw my services down, down your throat, it's It's, literally free information, because I know how confusing the stuff online is, and it's very difficult to know how to to trust, but please don't let this slide any longer than it already has been.
0: That's a very powerful and profound message to end on. Kirsten, thank you very much for your time today. I'll make sure I include all the information to the IBS dietitian in the show notes. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work and all the very best with your future endeavors.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me.